स्मार्ट यू आर लिसनिंग टू अमिंट प्रोडक्शन प्रॉट यू बाय एच टी स्मार्ट हेलो एंड वेलकम टू टर्मी हाउ यू डर इट आई एम नम्रता सकारिया एंड आई एम हेयर टू ब्रिंग टू यू माई हैंड पिक लिस्ट ऑफ सम ऑफ इंडिया फाइनेस्ट ब्रांड्स यस आर बेस्ट होम ग्रोन कंपनीज that can compete with the world's best and still win the battle hands down these companies range from food fashion and film to home art and design i'm only too happy to talk to the founders who not only chased their rainbows they also made india proud make sure you tune in at hdsmartcast.com week after week to shake the hands that built our best businesses listen to them tell me how they did it Vijaya Pastala founded under the mango tree in 2008 when she realized she wanted to work in rural development full time. She named her organic honey brand after a mango tree that protected her from an earthquake in Latur a decade before that. Under the mango tree or UTMT came to be India's only organic single origin certified honey brand sourcing via fair trade from farmers cooperatives. Within a year she founded the UTMT society that promotes beekeeping by farmers in agricultural plots to increase productivity enhance biodiversity and their livelihood in 2021 under the mango tree society won a grant of 5 crore from shivnathar's hcl foundation Vijaya Pastala is here on Tell Me How You Did It to tell us how bees can truly save us from climate change. Vijaya, welcome to the podcast. I'm thrilled to have you with us. Thank you, Namrata. It's a pleasure, uh, and uh, I'm I'm really happy to be able to share the story. And uh, thank you for having. Well, I'm a consumer and I'm a fan, so I'm very happy to finally be able to drag you on board on the podcast and. Uh, Yeah. Uh Vijay from a masters from MIT to spending 20 years and that's like almost a full career with the World Bank, the European Commission and the Aga Khan Foundation. You've consistently worked with rural livelihood. This is all before you started under the mango tree. So what were your learnings in the 20 years before you became, you know, an entrepreneur? So um as a development professional so i would i would call myself a development professional then i still tend to call myself a development professional now as well um i think my my biggest learning was that change cannot happen from top down and change um will only happen from you know when the community believes that they need that change and when they are accountable for that change and they own that change And so for me that was the biggest learning that communities um will only change when they believe that change is good and they are accountable for it what were your experiences in all these places what were your roles like at the world bank the aga khan foundation what did you do there where did you travel oh all very different all very different so when i first when i finished from mit MIT was actually a feeder into the World Bank. So in the sense that you know we as graduate students did a lot of uh free work, slave work and wrong word to use, but 
for our professors who were consultants with the World Bank. And so you graduated, you kind of walked into a World Bank uh, opportunity. So I, in when I was in DC, I actually worked on the first environmental impact assessment source book. So that was the first EIA source book that was created for all bank projects. And, you know, it was the kind of checklist um, that uh, the bank would then go on to use. Um, but I didn't feel it was a desk job. It was great. It was in D.C. It was, it's all that. But uh, one felt the need to come back. And, uh, yeah, that kind of uh, brought me back. So just uh, can I correct you on the uh, the name of Under the Mango Tree? Yes, um, of course. So no mango tree saved me from an earthquake, though it saved me from many, you know, I forgot the tremors, as they would call it. But the Latour earthquake actually had happened in already yeah. in 93 September end. And I joined um, a project, which was like a USAID-funded project, and to head it. Um, in January 94. And that, the name came from the process of, you know, when when I went in January 94, there was still, this was the first big earthquake. So talk about an experience, right? This was the first big earthquake that India had had, which was also televised because we saw pictures of it. Um, in, in So it was right here in Maharashtra, but we all saw pictures. We felt it. I had a friend spending the night that day and she felt she fell off her bed in Bombay. So, you know, we all felt it. And uh, when I reached Latour, I remember even today, there was like everything was as if a nuclear bomb had hit it. You know, it was just completely flattened. And we were still we were still removing bodies. So imagine in January, you're still removing bodies that were in under the rubble. So it was quite a, like a ice bath in, you know, entering relief. And uh, the project was um, funded by the USAID. And at that time, there used to be something called food aid. Yeah. When relief happened, the first thing that they would do when you had these kind of disasters was relief aid. So the US would send oils and bulgur. So bulgur is like like a dhalia, you know, wheat and oil. Now the area, Latur is actually a very rich um, area, you know, uh, and a very proud community of Maratha community, very proud. And they would be, they were all in, in relief camps, completely did not know where they were. And they were getting these handouts of uh, oil and bulgur, which... With bulk, nobody, I mean, you don't eat, right, here unless you're making a tabbouleh or something. And I don't even know if you use that. And so many, in many of the villages that we were distributing this relief food, we ended up being thrown out of those villages. So imagine I just come back to India and I was, this was like my first immersion of uh, being thrown out of villages uh, when you're trying to do something right, or you you think you're trying to do something right, right? Because that was the the prescription. This is how it works. You give out food aid. This is a community that is in distress, and uh, they will accept it. So that was a big learning that uh, you know 
it's just because they are in distress doesn't mean they will take something. Yeah. So many villages thrown out. Of. So that was a huge, uh, long story short, but a uh, huge experience. But how did the title come about? Yeah, exactly. So I kind of went into a tangent. So That's um, fine. So have any place to, you know, so slowly having meetings with the with the communities and we we started moving from disaster into into what was called development and uh we didn't have any offices so i didn't have an office in in the there was nothing and there used to be these aluminium tin sheds and latur is goes up to 50 degrees in the in the 50 degree centigrade in the summer so you you know you don't want to be in these aluminium tin sheds which are like ovens yeah so we would sit outside and we would sit under mango trees and the mango trees used to were fruiting at that time. And for me, that kind of stuck. So the name stuck because, you know, things happen under a mango tree and things of good things happen under a mango tree. And um, so that that's how the mango tree association came into being. I got married under a mango, mango tree as well. That's so, sweet. Yeah, under in uh, in my parents' place, and yeah, so the name I had the name much before the organization was created. So I always knew I wanted to have the name of under the mango tree. Would have been uh, because I went through a whole process of you know wanting to open a bed and breakfast, wanting to clean up but yeah, so. Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful name. It's poetic. It's magical. It conjures up like some you know a very pure little image of a uh, of something very wholesome. Yeah, yeah. And if you ever if you are ever in rural India and you, and especially in arid in a dry land rural India, you will always see a mango tree. You'll always see the shade that the mango tree offers to a passer. Uh, coming by and uh, you know so that embrace is something that uh, one always thinks of. So how did you get started with beekeeping and making honey? So I think the catalyst came from just being at a plateau uh, you know personally Um, so you know I was at a stage in my career where I would be in a particular country or a, in a hotel and not know where I was. Um, I would be able to go into a, into a location and do a review and work out what the problems were very fast. So there was no, no real uh, joy and josh, as you can say. And also I was a recent mom. And uh, as a, somebody who became a mom late in life, with all the excitement that the you know motherhood gives you and you're not getting the same excitement in work. So the balance was just really not there. Um, and I think that was the start of wanting to do something different. So that was, that was a big start. And then um, I, I do a lot of research and, and, and things. Uh, some of the idea came from when I, because I used to work in Himachal Pradesh and some of the ideas came from Himachal Pradesh and my access to beekeepers there in uh, or apple orchard. And then slowly, slowly. So Under the Mango Tree was, was created as a marketplace for farmers to access markets. So that was the big, that was always there. But the focus on bees and agriculture productivity came through discussions with the 
with now, you know, Sujana, who actually leads under the Mango Tree Society, uh, with other people who are working in the peace and productivity angle and trying to come together on what can we do. So for me, I was, I was very, you know, focused on trying to address two things, improving livelihoods at the rural area through either increasing income or increasing capacity. So, and how could we increase livelihoods? One of the, you know, because I had worked in agriculture and natural resource management, uh, we were looking at, I started looking at productivity and bees have a huge role to play in productivity. You know, yesterday I had a call with somebody and I asked her, what did, and she said, why are bees, you know, the same, one of the same questions like you asked about, why do you work with bees and what is so sustainable about bees? So I asked her a question. I said, what do you, what did you have for lunch? And she said, I had a Mexican bowl. So, you know, avocado, beans, salsa, onions, all the yummy stuff that goes in a Mexican bowl and rice. So I said, without bees, you would, in that bowl, you would just have rice. There wouldn't be anything else in that bowl. So when you talk about bees, climate change, sustainability, you know, three out of four foods that we eat are bee pollinated or are cross pollinated, not bee necessary, but bees are the best pollinator. So, you know, you won't have a pizza without bees because there won't be cheese because cows need fodder and fodder is bee pollinated. You know, today's makar sankranti, there won't be, um, there won't be sesame without bees. Um, so there would be sugar without bees. <laughs> because sugar doesn't need bees. But uh, yeah, so, you know, you won't have pulses, you won't have chocolate cake, you won't have a strawberry smoothie. So, And also the natural benefits of honey is are immense, right? When we looked at under the mango tree, um, for us, honey is actually the byproduct. Okay. It was more for us to look at agriculture productivity and improving livelihoods. And the honey then came into the picture because you have a product that can further increase the income. So this is really game changing. You didn't go in with the intention of, of making honey. You, you went in with the intention of increasing productivity and, and uh, increasing yield, right? Agricultural yield. And then the honey became, so to speak, an additional income. And, you know, you, you were just able to retail that. So we went in, I mean, it's, it's wrong to say that we didn't go with both, you know, both eyes yeah. open. So yeah. we knew that there would be honey as well, right? You can't just work with uh, agriculture productivity. You also have to have honey. But we went in with the angle that you have to have access to both. Yeah, fair enough. And you have access to a market so that there is increased income. But what research actually tells you is that increase in agriculture productivity is 13 times more than the cost of honey for the farm. So it's, you know, it's, that is really important. This is a great social impact story, you know, uh, Vijaya, as obviously increase in productivity also means increase in income and livelihoods. Um, I want to ask you about this beekeeping kit that you go to the farmers with and you train them what's in it and you train them with safety measures what what is this kit like? So can I take a little step back? Yes. 
um, before and just uh, explain to you like what we do. So, and then we'll talk about the beekeeping kit. So we actually, so one of the things that we are really clear about at Under the Mango Tree Society is that we work with indigenous bees. So in 1976, uh, the government of India actually wrote a white paper on the importance of bees in agriculture productivity. So they had actually written it and they said that, you know, this is really an important uh, thing that we should be doing. But unfortunately, they started looking at honey rather than agriculture. So, um, so we work with the indigenous bee. The government of India actually promotes the Apis mellifera, which is a European bee, which is a hybrid. Um, and she's a bigger honey producer. She produces six times more honey than the indigenous bee. But the indigenous bee is a pollinator. Uh, you know, her focus is a, she's a better pollinator. And for a small farmer who has, you know, a mixture of crops on his or her farm, she's a better pollinator. The, uh, the Apis mellifera, which is the European bee, is a monoculture preferred bee. She loves monoculture and that can only be possible with uh, large farmers. And when I use the word she is because 99.9% of bee, uh, beehives uh, or a bee colony is female. And there's only a, only a tiny percent, which is male. And then when the, and the male is only created for, for reproduction with the queen, and then the bees stop feeding the male and then the male dies. So it's. I like this story. So do I. Um, <laughs> uh, the females, you know, monitor it. So we work with indigenous bees uh, because one, uh, they are available in nature. The bees, the seed colony of the bees are available in nature. We move bees from their natural wild um, homes to a bee box. And that is the beekeeping kit that you were talking about. So. So when we start working with farmers, we give them a beekeeping kit. This is a grant. Uh, they get two bee boxes. They get training, hand-holding training for a period of one year. And we do this hand-holding training to help farmers understand the cycle of a bee with the season of flowers and the, and the climate. Because bees behave differently. This now, for example, in the cold, and especially in the northern areas where it is snow, bees behave differently. Or in our areas in the monsoon, bees are, you know, staying at home. It's called a dirt season where bees live in, the, in their hives. And so you need, they need to be taken care of differently. So the beekeeping kit has two, bo two boxes, a swarm bag so that they can catch the bees in the wild. Um, you know, their tra hand-holding training, uh, a bee veil so that they don't get stung, especially on their, in their, on their face. And yeah, and that's how we start our relationship with, uh, with farmers when we train. And now there are almost 200 villages and 4,000 farmers in Maharashtra, Gujarat, Madhya Pradesh, you know, where you work with these locals. How have their lives changed? Their lives have changed Primarily with the fact that, so these are farmers who are tribal farmers. So most of their income is barter. You know, so uh, suddenly now they have increased incomes where they can uh, sell their crops. So that's suddenly cash coming into the system. We've had farmers who've been able to invest the money that they have earned and bought uh, a water pump 
you know, these are farmers who were dependent on rain and now they can invest in a water pump so that they can have, you know, instead of having just a season after the monsoon, they can have a season of in the summer months as well. Um, it has changed even for our women beekeepers. We work with about a thousand women beekeepers. Uh, we have, it has changed social standing. Yeah, of um, course. And this is a new focus group for you, the women beekeepers, right? Yes, yes. yes. And then women sharing uh, you know, their stories with other women is even more important. So it's changed. So impact has is, is come from social status from, uh, in the villages. Um, increase in yield has also, you know, some of our studies have also shown that so we work in Palgar. So Palgar is one of the most malnourished districts in India. It's three hours from Bombay. Imagine that. Just three hours from Bombay. But uh, one of the most malnourished districts in India. I'll give you, this is a small example. We're seeing the addition of eggs in a family and a family's uh, meal. Imagine an egg which we take for granted. But here, just as a result of so when we talk about impact, it's really difficult to give an impact on, you know, from last year, I got five kilos of uh, rice, not rice, but vegetables. And this year, I've, as a result of these, I've got, you know, 10 kilos of vegetables. The change in impact is more on the fact that, you know, nutrition has changed. Yeah, it's qualitative and it's, it's, qualitative. it's, it's also emotional. Yeah. Now, also more important, like during the lockdown, you know, a lot of us think about like when the first lockdown happened and we were all stuck in our houses in, in Bombay and we saw, my, you know, millions of migrants walking uh, back to their homes. But what happened to the, to the villages that, you know, that had no access to anything? But suddenly a lot of our villages, because they had, uh, you know, focused on kitchen gardens and uh, vegetables they had food to eat. They didn't go hungry. They did go. It's not like they didn't go hungry, but they had some access to food because remember, they couldn't even go to the markets, right? And a lot of these villages are like an hour or two from local markets. So, so that was that is an impact. The fact that you have food to eat from one meal a day, you're moving to two meals. A day. You know, that is impact. That's change yeah. in impact. Yeah, of course. You have black tea and suddenly you have a tea with milk. That's fantastic, Vijaya. Um, when did you start retail and what were the challenges of getting under the mango tree honey on, um, on supermarket shelves? So we started retailing in uh, 2009 itself. You know, uh, we first launched, we first did an upper crust exhibition in 2008. And then from there, we got our first uh, partnerships with Navdanya, Bakehaven in Bombay. Um, I think the biggest challenge was as the first honey brand to talk about single origin and focus on origin. Customers until then had been used to, you know, honey. Yeah. They're used to the origin of honey. They never knew that you could, you could have honey that was based from either the nectar source or a region like our wild forest or our tiger reserve comes from a region and that's why it's single region as well and so a lot of customers would think that is you know have you added the essence in the honey uh, or we would have customers would say that oh eucalyptus 
often taste like eucalyptus. And then you would say, what does eucalyptus taste like? And they would say, well, Vicks is is made out of eucalyptus. And then you would say, well, Vicks is from the bark of the tree or our thinking eucalyptus is the bark of the tree or the smell of the eucalyptus uh, leaf. But this comes from nectar. Half of, you know, we don't know what nectar smells like, tastes like. But somehow in many times, like you can feel, you get fruity, maybe spicy, I know, after nose. So it's very much like wine. So it takes the terror of terroir of the, uh, of the space that it comes from. So, so the big challenge was the fact that uh, customers did not know that. Um, the second challenge is getting into retail is not easy. You know, retail costs to just to get a shelf space and to um, presence on the shelf. Their retail takes what is called listing fees. Um, you know, this is the Walmart model that has now come into India in full force. Um, and that for you that, have to pay. You have to pay a supermarket for them to sell your. Yeah, your. You have to pay a supermarket. Well, you have to pay them anyway, like a margin that you give a supermarket for selling the product. But you also have to pay the supermarket to get you that shelf space. You're paying, you're buying square foot in, in, in that, you know, if you work with a brand that has number of outlets and you have, say, five uh, SKUs or stock keeping units, then you're paying per stock keeping unit per outlet. So you're buying square foot too. And that's a one-time cost. So that's very expensive. So that's a big, that's, that was another um, challenge. I think the third challenge was that honey is, uh, you know, in India, we don't eat as much honey as uh, we should. We are still struggling with how to eat honey. We, we, we still think honey is eaten when we have a cough and a cold. Um, we don't sweeten our cakes or our, our food with it. Um, and so consumption of honey is still low. So just, you know, in, in Germany, you know, if you compare German consumption, annual consumption versus India, um, India, a German consumer consumes one and a half kilos of honey in a year. And Indian um, consumes half a teaspoon. So that's the consumption of honey for us. So that was a big thing. So you would buy a honey and then you would bottle and you would keep it in your, uh, on, your, on your shelf for six months. You're not buying again. So that's, that, that was a tough week for us. The finance minister recently announced 500 crores for beekeeping, which would benefit 2 lakh farmers. What are your views on this? Go for it. <laughs> I, I, I think the UTMG society team should be asked this. Um, no, I think one of the, we're really happy that the government has and the finance minister, Mr. Modi, they've all paid special attention to beekeeping. Uh, and I think that is that is good thing. What we would really like is for the government to actually pay more attention to indigenous bees because they are more hardier, they're cheaper, and they can focus more. It's a, it's a tool and a skill, um, or rather an input for a smaller farmer. And in India, about 75% of our farmers, if you look at our farmer population, is actually small farmers. Yeah, of course. A large farmer with, you know, a truckload of um, 200 bee boxes, each bee box costing 5,000 rupees, and they have to be migrated so that they can satisfy the bees' uh, hunger. It's the right word. 
Um, that's expensive. We promote uh, homestead beekeeping, which is the bees don't need to be migrated. You need a minimum of two boxes. You can grow it to, if you're, a, if you're an entrepreneur or bee, beekeeper, you can grow it to a much uh, larger bee, bar, a bee colony level. And uh, you are addressing the beekeeper's livelihood there in their own space. You're not forcing them to migrate. And that's what we promote. So we wish the government would focus a lot on that as well. Richard, sure there are a lot of players in the market suddenly. There weren't so many earlier. Oh, again, going back to our supermarket shelves. But there's also now a great movement, especially in the urban centers, against commercial honey. What does purity or 100% natural honey mean? Yeah, really important question. Um so last year, I, the Center for Science and Environment did a, a big, um, you know, they, they do this couple of years. They did it uh, 10 years ago as well. Um, they did a big study on finding that a lot of our market leaders did not have pure honey um, or the honey was not Indian origin. So there are a couple of tests that define the origin of So there is an NMR test. That, uh, they, that the Center for Science and Environment used uh, to define the fact that uh, this honey was not pure. The challenge with the NMR test, so uh, our honeys are NMR tested as well. Um, and, but the challenge with an NMR test is that it is defined by European standards. And a lot of the indigenous bee uh, DNA, so the NMR test is a DNA, uh, it's a nuclear measurement resonance which looks at the DNA um, and seeks origin. Um, a lot of the DNA is of Indian bees or indigenous bees is not listed in the database of the German company that does the NMR test. So that's a challenge. Um, NMR test is the, is the best to determine the purity of honey. Um, it's extremely expensive. Cost between 16 to 20,000 rupees. Again, large companies can afford this for every batch. It's very difficult for companies like ours to afford it for every batch, but we try. We, we know that. So testing for me is critical to determine purity. I spend a lot of money to doing testing. Um, I do not listen to, you know, that, oh, my dog did not eat the honey, so therefore it is pure. Honey is uh, doesn't dissolve in hot water, then it is, it, it's not pure. Or crystallizes. So crystallized honey. So right now, just now, we have all, you know, honey that's crystallized. Crystallized honey is pure honey. If a honey doesn't crystallize, that means it has been boiled to kingdom come so that all its properties have been removed. And it, even if you put it in the freezer, it will not crystallize. It'll be like a vodka. So, um Crystallized honey, when it honey crystallizes, it is good. But that's another big challenge, right? A lot of our customers, consumers of honey, believe that honey should not crystallize. And that's also because for, for many years, we are eating processed, highly processed, um, cooked honey, which, uh, which does not crystallize. Every single bottle looks the same. Every single bottle tastes the same. And if I was able to show you via video, I would show you the different colors of honey. Um, because honey comes from different colors. Another important thing, honey changes with age. 
the color of honey changes with age. The taste of honey changes with age. So how do you assess purity? For us, we assess purity by one, testing. Two, by the mechanism of traceability, which is critical for us because we have relationships with our beekeepers. And these are now long-term relationships that we have cultivated and um, and nurtured. And, uh, you know, we own, they own us. We own them in that sense. The own ownership is a wrong word, but we are accountable to each other. And that is how we, you know, we determine the quality of the product. Fantastic. This has been so eye-opening and it's such a simple idea that has really brought on so much impact, not only for farmers, but also for the planet. I I cannot but congratulate you, Vijaya. It's been wonderful talking to you and thank you once again for joining us. No, thank you for having me so much. It's been really a pleasure. If you enjoyed the show or not, write to me on Instagram, Twitter, or Clubhouse at Namrita Sitaran. You can catch the video podcast on the Lifelink channel on YouTube. For updates on Tell Me How You Did It, follow us at HT Smartcast. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Clubhouse. To listen to more podcasts, log on to htsmartcast.com or suno nai nazariye se. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.